Hi, this is episode 109 of Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast, coming to you from deep within capitalist society. We're recording this on Sunday, January 21, 2024. I'm your co-host, Andrew Kleiman. And I want to announce that Radio Free Humanity has a new permanent co-host, and he's with me today, Gabriel Donnelly. Regular listeners will recall that Gabriel has been on the podcast a number of times, both as a guest and as a co-host. So welcome, Gabriel. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. I've been listening to the show since episode one, and as Andrew just indicated, it's been an honor and pleasure for me to be on a couple times. So I'm going to try and be a uh, halfway decent Marxist humanist Ed McMahon from this point on. Wrong, Buffalo Breath. A few episodes were already in the works before Gabriel came aboard as permanent co-host. So in today's main segment, uh, and in a couple of future ones, we'll have a guest co-host along with me. But after that, we expect that Gabriel and I will share the co-hosting responsibilities as a rule, although we may mix it up a bit from time to time with a guest co-host filling in for one of us or the other of us. In today's main segment, the guest co-host is Teresa Henry. She'll be interviewing me about value and labor in capitalism and in socialism. Some of the questions we'll be addressing. Is the so-called law of value a specifically capitalist law, or does it operate in socialism as well? What's the import of Marx's claim that labor and capitalism is only indirectly social but that it will be directly social in a socialist society. If you're a worker, what does that mean for you? To address these questions and related ones, we'll focus on a 1943 article in which the Russian Stalinists revised their position on whether the law of value operates in socialism, and they also revised the meaning of directly and indirectly social labor. Teresa and I got into a pretty extensive exploration of the issues. We had a long discussion, and we decided not to cut it short so that it would fit just into one episode. So in today's main segment, you'll be listening to just the first half of our discussion, and the second half will air in an episode in the near future. But first, Gabriel and I will be talking about the oh-so-exciting start of the U.S. presidential elections. The Republicans held their first caucus last week on Tuesday in Iowa, and the surprise winner was, drumroll please, Donald Trump. Of course, that actually was not a surprise, but there were and are other things involved that we do want to talk about today. Please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org, the website of Marxist Humanist Initiative, to listen to past episodes of this podcast series, to learn more about the issues discussed in them, to post comments, and to provide Radio Free Humanity with much-needed donations as we go forward. This podcast series is sponsored and hosted by Marxist Humanist Initiative. But the views expressed by hosts and guests are our own. They don't necessarily reflect the views or positions of MHI. Next up, Gabriel and I on the Iowa Republican Caucus. So, Gabriel, uh, 
I was going to ask you what's your hot take, but it was cold there. So what's your cold take on the Iowa caucus? The real fallout from it has hit early this afternoon with the announcement of DeSantis dropping out from the primaries and his endorsement of Donald Trump. The sad, sad story of a man from Florida named Ron. It teaches us a lot about Trumpism. The most support he ever had was right after the midterm elections, where the MAGA movement seemed to take a hit, not do as well as they should have done against a fairly unpopular president. And DeSantis did very well. He overperformed compared to the party nationally in Florida. So he was in a strong spot, but he's just been fumbling and fumbling since. I think he really shows us something. There have been successful Republican politicians before. George H.W. Bush comes to mind, who are not charismatic in a really traditional sense. The Trumpists, they want a charismatic strongman figure, preferably Trump, to sell their agenda. And there's enough of them who are committed to the agenda that Republican primary, you either need to defeat them or you need to have them on your side. And if you have an off-putting personality and you're just trying to be off-brand Trump, nobody wants it. Right. Trump has got a personal following. He's the personification of the the grievances and the resentment and the thirst for retribution of his base. It was the really disappointing non-red wave in November of 2022, midterm elections. Trumpism did not do well. And that was DeSantis's moment. And if they had all crystallized around him, he would have had a shot. But no. So field uh, splinters this way and that way, and Trump, he's, he's a lock on the nomination, unless through some other channel, he goes down. And I think that that's what really kept DeSantis in the race and is keeping Nikki Haley in the race, his legal troubles. He shouldn't even be able to run, but he's running. <laughs> I think um, he should be allowed yeah. to run for his life. But then you've got the never Trumpers associated with like the Bulwark website. I think some of the most interesting stuff I was reading about the beginning of this caucus primary season are all these voters, Republican primary voters, and they're saying, even if he's convicted, no, that's not going to change my vote. And in the bulwark, Jonathan V. Last had a really interesting little piece, and the title and subtitle kind of tell it all. The title is, the media keeps trying to, quote, understand, close quote, Trump voters because they don't want to accept the truth about them. And the subtitle is, if someone keeps choosing an authoritarian and likes the authoritarian even more when he does authoritarian stuff, then maybe they just like authoritarianism. He's talking about Dan Seltzer, who's a Iowa pollster. And when Republican respondents were presented with the most extreme statements that Trump has made, they liked him even more. So certain people are understanding this and coming to grips with it and saying, look, it's not economic anxiety, and it's not that people are even being manipulated by Fox. There is a mass base of people, not a majority, but there is a mass base of people in this country who want this authoritarianism, who want this retribution. I think the people who remain in the Republican Party are basically the people who say, okay, that's the way it is, and that's my new meal ticket. Then there are some of the people who, like Liz Cheney, 
And the people at the bulwark who said, no, that's a bridge too far or a bridge gate too far or something. <laughs> As you said, it's this is a mass, but not certainly not a majority. And I think it's dawning on some of the people in Trump's circle and even some of the mass base that they probably wouldn't get what they want in a democracy. And democracy is a threat to their desires. But he will lose the white independence that he was able to win in 2016, that he alienated in 2020, and other groups like that, that became less and less interested or willing to vote for him. And so the enemy now becomes more and more for those in this space, liberal democracy. And it's becoming frighteningly explicit, I think. And his rhetoric around his enemies, the forces, to use his language, the forces of evil arrayed against him is becoming deeply frightening, as if it wasn't already. Right. He's got a mass base, but it's not a majority. And that's one of the really interesting things about Iowa and how like the hot takes and the punditry are coming down. Trump got 51%, which is huge in a contested caucus that you get an absolute majority. So people say the glass is 51% full. Trump is the Republican Party. He's all dominant, and that's the way it's going. Then there are the people who say, oh, look, the glass is 49% empty. Here's a former president. He's led the Republican Party really for eight years now. His name recognition is 100%, and he only gets 51%. How can that be? So there are certain people who say Trump was actually underperforming. There must be a significant chunk of the Republican electorate who's really dissatisfied with Trump and they're going to sit out the general election or maybe vote for Biden or something like that. And, you know, there's some entrance poll results that go to that question. How do you view this? Well, I think that the point you just indicated of sitting out, I've seen some commentariat and pollster evidence that seems to indicate that this, if it really does come down to, which we all know it will and have for, for since 2020, basically, that 2024 will come down to Biden and Trump again, this might be a election with record low participation and turnout, as opposed to 2020, where we had an election with record high participation and turnout because of expanded mail-in voting due to COVID and other factors. These same two figures saying the same things will lead to record low turnout. It certainly seems to be that way because there's certainly a chunk of Republican voters that just might not even fill in a circle on the presidential part of their ballot that day or not come in at all. And it seems now more and more there might be chunks of the Democratic electorate doing the same. A factor that's pushing us to higher turnout, though, is the salience of the abortion issue since the Dobbs decision. People are very mad about that. It's very clear that the Republicans want a nationwide ban on abortion. So I actually expect high turnout because this is in particular an issue, of course, that's going to motivate younger people. The main thing I've been thinking this past week is, man, I can't believe it's already started and we're just going to be in presidential election mode until November this year. It's going to be miserable. And the Trumpists will be out in force throughout the primary season, and who knows how these conventions are going to go. It just feels like a very tense moment. It's definitely scary to see. It's going to be a hell of a year. The Supreme Court might decide to like rip off the Band-Aid. 
Do I expect it? No. Could it happen? They could say, yeah, he's disqualified. If Colorado wants to disqualify him, Maine wants to disqualify him, we got states' rights. That could happen. There are a lot of Republicans who don't think it's good for the future of conservatism. Most of them have to play politics, but the Supreme Court doesn't. So I think we have to be prepared for anything. Prepared for anything is certainly where our heads should be at. The past eight years have shown us anything. It's uh, prepared for anything, especially the worst. Just before we jump into conversation, I want to make a note that when we were recording, we had such an in-depth conversation that we went over time. But instead of cutting out any of the valuable things that were said, any aspects of the conversation that we thought were all very important for the listener to hear, we've decided to break the episode into two. So episode 109, which you were listening to, is the first portion of the conversation. The second portion of the conversation will be in an upcoming Radio Free Humanity episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Radio Free Humanity. My name is Teresa Henry, and I'm here with Andrew Kleiman. Hi, everybody. Hi, Teresa. Hello. Thanks for having me on the show. Thanks for interviewing me. Today, we're going to be recording episode 109 of Radio Free Humanity on the Russian revision of Marx's Law of Value. We're recording on Saturday, January 20th, 2004. And so in this episode, we'll try to identify what the Russian revision is, how it differs from Marx's own conception of the Law of Value, Ray Donievskaya's response to this revision, as well as some further response and explanation from Andrew himself. And we'll try to talk about the contemporary significance of such revision, why it's worth revisiting and why it's worth talking about today. So I'll jump right in with some background. In September 1944, Rea Donievskaya published an English translation, Teaching of Economics in the Soviet Union, of an article that first appeared in the Soviet Journal under the banner of Marxism. In 1943, and an introduction to this translation entitled A New Revision of Marxian Economics in the American Economic Review, Volume 34, Issue 3. You've also written about this revision of Marx's economic theory in your important article, Marx's Critique of the Gotha Program on Capitalism versus Communism, for example. We'll flesh this out more throughout the episode. But can you briefly introduce us to exactly what you and Ray Donievskaya argue the Soviet article revised in Marx's economic theory? Yeah, and it's actually not even so much of an argument. It's more of a report on what the article itself said it was revising. It was revising the teaching and the prevalent understanding of the law of value The prevalent understanding was that the law of value does not operate in socialism. They said that it does. And along with that, there was revision of a lot of related concepts like directly social labor, the role of commodities supposedly in a socialist society and money. Also related to that, they said we produce surplus products. The other revision, though, was a pedagogical revision regarding how one reads Marx's Capital, how one teaches it, 
people had been saying, well, you open the book and you start and you move along and you respect the integrity of the text, the dialectical structure of the text, the unfolding of the categories. And the Stalinist said, no, 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 no. Move the discussion of commodities and money and the dual character of labor. Move that elsewhere. Don't begin with that. If we're talking about capitalism, don't mention that the building blocks of capitalism are things like commodities and money and you know the dual character of labor. Right. So the article of revisions to Marx's theory to revisions on important concepts like directly social labor, important revisions to important ways of understanding what certain things do like commodities and capitalist production and money, revision to how to read and study and teach capital, the book itself. And then, of course, the revision to the Marxian interpretation of the law of value. And the revision on the law of value, if I understand, is that before this article, the consensus in the Soviet Union was the law of value does not operate in a socialist society. This article says the law of value does exist in a socialist society. Look at our society. It's socialist. The law of value is here. And that's the change. Is that correct? There was a lot of confusion. But just on the basic point, does the law of value operate in socialism? One time there was a consensus that it doesn't. In the USSR, prior to this revision, that was the standard doctrine. Okay, so I don't know how much of a consensus there actually was around it, but that was the ideological line. The law of value does not operate in socialism. And then they revised it and said, no, it does. And they did it exactly on the basis that you said, okay, first, you assume what needs to be proven, that what we've got in the USSR is socialism. And then since the law of value is operating there, put those two together, then you get the law of value operates in socialism. That was the methodology of the article. Right. Yeah. So we'll get to that flawed, I would say methodology in a bit, but back to the publication of the Soviet article and Donetskaya's translation and introduction. She wrote Herbert Marcuse in 1954 when she was introducing herself to him at the beginning of their correspondence that translation in the American Economic Review caused a, what she said a, a sufficient stir to hit the front page of the New York Times and to prolong the debate in the American Economic Review for a whole year. Who were Donetskaya's interlocutors in the American Economic Review? And how did they disagree with her? And how did she respond to their criticisms? Right. So let me flesh out a little bit what happened. People had heard of this article, revising the Russian doctrine, but it was wartime and it was hard to get a copy. Donetskaya was able to get a copy. One copy made it to the U.S. Library of Congress. She translated it from the Russian to the English, and she said to the American Economic Review, hey, you want to publish it? And they said, yeah. And they also gave her the opportunity to write a very short commentary. So in American Economic Review, you got this like 30-page article translated from the Russian and a very short commentary thereafter by uh, Raya Dunyevskaya. That was the first time she used the name Raya Dunyevskaya. And then basically all hell breaks loose after her commentary. But also in general, because it was like a big deal, the Russians were revising their economic doctrine. 
And all these pro-Stalinist and other economists coming out of the woodwork, people much, much more famous than she was, tenured professors at big-name universities, and they all want to get their views in. So a lot of comments were published over the next year plus in the American Economic Review. And then the American Economic Review said to Duniskaya, well, it's only fair. We'll give you the last word. We're going to cut off the debate after this. So all these people published their responses to her and their views of what the significance of this article was. Dunyevskaya responded to Oscar Lange and Paul Baran and Leo Rogan in her second shot there, a piece that concluded the debate. The biggest name, I think, of all of them that she was responding to was Oscar Lange. He was a professor of economics at the University of Chicago, and he was already very famous for supposedly having proved that a centrally planned economy could be efficient. This is the socialist calculation debate. Once Poland moves into the Soviet bloc, he becomes the Polish ambassador to the U.S., had other posts in the Polish government. Paul Baran was a professor at Stanford. He was Paul Sweezy's sidekick, one of the co-founders of Monthly Review, you know, Stalinist journal. And when he was responding to what Dunevskaya said in the American Economic Review, he's quoting Sweezy, quoting Sweezy, treating that as like the authoritative word on what Marx said. And then Dunevskaya also responded to Leo Rogan. He was a professor of economics at the University of California, Berkeley. Not as well known, but he was a teacher of John Kenneth Galbraith and a major influence on Galbraith, who was, of course, quite well known. My understanding is that they didn't all agree with each other. For ex- example, Lang is, my understanding, trying to say, yeah, this the law of value can operate in a socialist society. And he pulls out some of the very picks, some of the same quotes that the Soviet article did. Rogan kind of maneuvered around the question of the law of value in his response. And then Barron was saying, yeah, that's correct. The law of value can't operate in a socialist society. But he was also saying that Soviet Union was a socialist society. And he was chalking that contradiction up to terminological issues or something like that. Nothing, nothing fundamental or, or substantial. They had three different responses to Donetskaya but they all seemed to wanting to defend the socialist character of the Soviet Union against her claim that the article itself clearly demonstrates that by Marx's standards, at least, the Soviet Union was not a socialist society. Let's begin with Langa. You say he dredged up a couple of quotes, but his basic line was that the law of value is a trans-historical law. It operates before capitalism, And then, of course, during capitalism, but also after capitalism. But it's a capitalist law. It only operates in pure form during capitalism. He was torturing Marx and Engels had written, make them confess to his point of view. Again and again and again, in Marx's writings and Engels' writings, they affirmed that the socialist economy is not a value-producing economy. In other words, doesn't produce abstract wealth value. The other point was, why does he say that the law of value operates in its pure form in capitalism? His basic idea is 
that the law of value is a law about how individual prices are determined. So if individual prices tend to reflect the amount of labor that goes into things, then that's the pure operation of the law of value. Dunyevskaya said, look, this is just not what Marx meant by the law of value. And he didn't use the term a lot, Marx himself. It became a big deal after Marx. But when he did use the term, almost all the time, he did not mean by law of value what Langa said. And Rogan, I don't think he wanted to deal with this issue of the law of value. He wanted to deal with income distribution. And so he says, look, okay, Dunyevskaya is right that there's not distribution according to need from each according to their ability to each according to their need. That's not happening in USSR, but that's the higher phase of communism. Okay, he was right. Marx said that that's about the higher phase of communism. And what you've got in the lower phase of communism is people contribute according to their labor, and they get back in accordance with their labor. The Russian articles say, yeah, what we've got in the USSR is distribution according to labor. And Rogan just bought that lock, stock, and barrel. And Dunyevskaya said, what the Russians mean by distribution according to labor isn't actual labor. It's not the distribution according to the actual amount of work people are doing. It's actually distribution according to value, the value of what they're producing. So it has nothing to do with what Marx was talking about in the critique of the Gotham program. And my recent article that you mentioned, I go in into that. What they call distribution according to labor is not distribution according to labor, the actual amount of work people do. And Baran was arguing was the law of value doesn't operate in socialism, and it actually doesn't operate in the USSR, but the USSR is socialist. So the Russian article is just wrong, and it's all terminological confusion. And Dunyaskaya says, look, the Russians say we've revised the doctrine so that theory matches reality. And they're damn straight right with that. Their new theory does match their new reality. So you can't say, have it both ways like Baran is having it. The theory says the law of value operates. New reality is the law of value operates. Question is, are you going to say that that's socialism or are you not going to say that that's socialism? Right. Thank you for getting into the details of that. One thing that comes to mind immediately just hearing you explain these different responses is the sense of compounding obfuscation and confusion of Marx's original statements and and arguments and their political implications. Like we have the revision in the Soviet article in 1943. We have Donayevskaya's response, uh, translation and introduction. And then we have three responses to that. And then we have her response to these three responses. And there's just multiplication of different interpretations happening. So I'm from a younger generation of Marxists and activists than than your generation. And I can see why some people in my generation would say, oh, well, well, who cares? Who cares about this article that came out in 1943? Who cares about Ray Donayevsky's response? Who cares about Baran? What does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with capitalism today. So I feel like it's worth asking why why discuss this 80-year-old article about the economics of a state that no longer exists 
why discuss these three responses to Donetsky's translation so much later on when it feels like so much has changed? What is the importance of continuing these discussions? When I was your age, when I was coming into the movement, first identifying as a socialist and so forth, I'm not young. I'm really like the tail end of the generation of 1968. People were already saying this kind of stuff. Like, this doesn't matter because, first of all, we're in America and the U.S. is a rich country and this is all doctrine and who cares. That was always trotted out, even when the USSR was still in existence. The fact of the matter is, though, that what is really at issue in this debate is not or not only what was the class character of the USSR. It's a theoretical debate. When you say Russia was socialist, you say Russia was not socialist. You say Russia was capitalist. There's no brute fact involved here. What we're dealing with are concepts. Was Russia socialist? Was it capitalist? It all depends on what is your conception of what capitalism is? What is your concept of what socialism is? So the answer is dependent on your concept. So what we're actually debating and investigating and thinking about and returning to are concepts. What is socialism? What do we mean by the term? What kind of society are we for? Capitalism. What do we mean by capitalism? And what kind of features of the present need to be changed in order to transcend capitalist society. That's really what's at issue here. And these are not issues of the past. They're not issues that went away when the USSR collapsed. These are issues that are going to be with us until we get rid of capitalism once and for all. And they're going to be with us until we defeat the people who want to replace one form of capitalism with what they call socialism, but we think it's just another form of capitalism. They're not things of the past at all. I think that's really huge. What you bring up about the meaning of socialism itself, the dilution or distortion of that meaning that the unresolved multiple meanings it might be given, and how all of this is an obstacle to understanding what it takes to overcome capitalist production. So I've talked to people in the labor movement here and friends in the past and more recently who are Marxists or socialist workers. And I ask them, what is socialism or what is the goal? What are we trying to do? And the response I get a lot of the time is workers' control of production. It's not the abolition of the production of value. It's just workers' control. And then so I think that's a pretty common idea. And I know that this is not exactly what debate at stake that we're discussing here is about it's not about workers control or not but i think this is another example of how people have a different understanding of socialism they see socialism just as different owners of the means of production not different ways of producing itself or different arrangements of production the different outcomes and results of production um different purposes of production etc so i agree that it's Maybe if it doesn't seem immediately clear to my generation or it didn't seem immediately clear to your generation, either why this is important. The issue of the whole movement 
is at stake here. The the meaning of socialism, what it takes to overcome capitalism. If we're not straight on that, it seems evident to me we'll make a misstep and we'll land in a, like the Soviet Union in this kind of monstrous totalitarian capitalist country ruled by a party that calls itself communist, a state that calls itself a workers' state. Yeah, I, I think you're completely right about this. People talk about workers' control and people deciding for themselves and so forth. It all sounds really good, but when people begin to make that the solution, full stop, that's all we need to talk about is who's in control. I go, well, hold on a minute. What enables the workers to be in control? If you've got the domination of production by the law of value, the purpose of production is the self-expansion of abstract wealth. Then you've got these external economic forces that are actually in control. The capitalists do not control capitalism. Capitalism controls the capitalists and the workers and everybody else. These are external laws that are created by us through our, our activity, but we're not in control of them. A company that lays off workers doesn't do it because the owners or the managers are evil people. Yeah, they're evil people, but they lay people off because it's not profitable to keep people on the payroll you know, in excess of what's needed. And if you're not profitable, your company is going to perish. And there are just instances after instances of these external compulsions. And if you put workers in charge of a system like this, you're going to get what Marx called the same shit all over again. You're going to have the workers exploiting themselves. And Marx talked about this. He says, the cooperative ventures you know, of his time, they were prefiguration, they were a harbinger of the new society, but as long as they're operating within capitalism, they are reproducing and they are bound to reproduce capitalist relations. He says the workers in association become their own capitalist. In other words, workers are supposedly in control, but one half of them is the worker, the other half of them is capitalists telling him, hey, you know, you got to speed up. Hey, you got to ignore the fact that there's oil on the floor and it's slippery and you could hurt yourself because we got to get this stuff out so that we can compete in this market. So this idea of workers are in control just begs the question of what enables the workers to be in control. And you've got to talk about value relations, commodity production, the social purpose of production, and all of this and just thinking that you're going to put different people in power and that solves all questions? No, absolutely not. I agree. So we talked a bit about the significance of these debates and why we should continue to discuss these revisions to the concept and meaning of socialism, even if they're 80 years old. Let's talk a bit about the significance of the Soviet revision for the development of Donievskaya's thought and Marxist humanism, but also for Soviet society and theory in the post-war period. Do you have some comments about maybe first this revision's development on Donievskaya's thought and Marxist humanism? Right. For a number of years already, she had been arguing 
along with C.R. James, J.R. Johnson, that the USSR was a capitalist society. And her main focus up to that point was on trying to demonstrate uh, on the basis of Marx's conception of socialism that the USSR was capitalist, according to that conception of socialism. And then comes this article in under the banner of Marxism. They say, oh, the law of value operates in the USSR. The law of value operates in socialism. Okay, Duniskaya said, that's it case closed, this is tacitly an admission that the USSR is capitalist, as we've been saying. They didn't put it that way, but on the basis of Marx's concepts, you've got the domination of the law of value, you've got capitalism. They've admitted to this case closed, let's move on. So she began to move on just from that plain argument that the USSR was capitalist. Another real important aspect of this article for her Increasingly over the years, she began to put more emphasis on this idea that the teaching of capital, Marx's book Capital, shouldn't start with the first chapter on commodities and then the second chapter on exchange and the third chapter on money. You know, it should move directly to full blown capitalism. And again, the point of altering the structure when one teaches it or reads it was to make it seem like value, production of commodities, existence of money. That's one thing. has nothing to do with capitalism. And then there's capitalist production, creation of surplus value. Over there, something separate. So it's dividing what's full-blown capitalism from the building blocks of capitalism. And Duniskaya continued to stress importance of this revision and the separation of what you know is, in fact, the unity. And that's partly because people like Louis Althusser and others were repeating what Stalin had basically ordered, that you shouldn't read and you shouldn't teach capital from the beginning going forward. You also asked, what's the significance of this revision of the law of value for Soviet society and, and the theory that exists within it? I think Tunisia got it right. And that's because the Russian ideologues themselves got it right. Soviet economic theory, with this article, was finally brought into line with Soviet reality. There had been the teaching that the law of value doesn't operate. They said, no, the law of value does operate. So bringing theory into line with reality, that sounds good. And in some cases, it is good. There's a big problem if your theory says X, but the reality is Y. But when we're dealing with social theory rather than physics or something, there's two ways to make theory and reality match. You could accept existing reality as it is and make the theory fit what exists, or you could do the opposite. You can realize theory by transforming reality. You remake reality so that it fits the theory. That's the revolutionary way. That wasn't the Russian way. The Russians revised Marxian theory so that it conformed to the reality there. And not only did it make them match, it endorsed the reality. It said that the main features of the Russian economy weren't just defects. They weren't something that was temporary imposed by the World War or the poverty of Russia or being encircled by the capitalist Western powers. Commodities, money, value, surplus products, all of this 
These were essential features of socialism, hired labor, producing surplus products for the sake of accumulation, all of that. So the basic message was what we have now is not some defects. Don't expect workplace conditions to change radically after the war. Economic conditions are not going to change radically after the war. What you're living through is not an emergency wartime economy. It is socialism, and it's the way things are going to be and continue to be until maybe sometime in the very, very, very distant future, we reach the higher phase of communism. Another aspect of the article I think was really important was when it said that the law of value exists in socialism, the Russian article said, well, it exists, but it exists in a different way than under capitalism, because the state uses the law of value. How does it use it? It uses the law of value to plan the economy. So the article goes into the use of the law of value to plan the economy, and it's stressing the importance of cost accounting based on value and price measurement. And what Dunyevskaya said basically was, look, the ideas here and the methodology here are, are, quote, those of an intelligentsia concerned with the acquisition of surplus products. The Soviet Union has entered the period of applied economics. Instead of theory, the article presents an administrative formula for minimum costs and maximum production, basically saying what the law of value above all is for us is a set of tools that we use to plan the economy, to keep costs down, to maximize production so that we can accumulate these surplus products. So from the standpoint of the workers in the USSR, this is very bad news. This idea that the law of value not only continues to exist in a socialist society, but that the state uses it to plan the economy. So the state is using the value relation that forces workers into a relationship of exploitation with their bosses. This doesn't exist. This is the conscious plan of so-called socialist society. So in other words, the goal or the role of the worker in so-called socialist society is the same as the role of the worker in capitalist society. Except because it's not just left to the anarchy of the market or whatever, it's guided by exactly the calculations of what the state needs to recover from a devastating war. I can't see any way other than this translating to the role of the worker in socialist society in the Soviet Union is the same as the role of the worker in a capitalist society. It's to toil away all day. And then to have the things you produce appropriated from you, this in this case, for the use of the state. But because of the wartime conditions, this is going to be happening at an extremely accelerated pace. So there's going to be constant speed up. There's going to be longer hours. There's going to be less breaks. There's going to be less room for absenteeism, for being sick, for slacking off at the job, etc. It's not just this continuation of capitalist relations of production, it's the continuation of capitalist relations of production accelerated by the state plan. That to me is the once the theoretical justifications are stripped away, it's a plan to continue enslaving the workers to the machines. Yeah. I mean it was to some extent 
wartime conditions, but more fundamentally, Russia was a backward country and had hostile Western capitalist powers all around it. So the Russians said, we got to industrialize, we got to militarize so we can defend ourselves, so we can keep our system going. And so they had to accomplish in hot house fashion what evolved over much longer time in England. And in addition to this, what was on Stalin's mind is we got to win the hearts and minds of the workers, and we're not going to do that by ideology. We're going to do that by example and how we're going to grow. And by growing, we can raise living standards. The workers in this country, that country, the other country, they're going to see that and say, okay, this is the way to go. The problem, of course, is all of this is on the backs of the workers. Yeah, yeah. I want to pick up on it in their first response to the last question. And then in your response to my comments, you gestured or mentioned that Stalin had particular motivations in the USSR at this time, obviously. But it, it seems that you found evidence that Ray Donetsky perhaps didn't know about and certainly didn't include in her introduction or her response to the other economists in the American Economic Review. You found evidence of a conversation between Stalin and some leading economists of the Soviet Union a couple of years before this article was published that I think show pretty crystal clear what the motivations and inspiration for writing and publishing under the banner of Marxism article. Do you want to talk about that conversation that you found between Stalin and the Soviet economists? Yeah. The article in Under the Banner of Marxism was not even signed. First named editor of the journal was L.A. Leontiev, and Dunyaskaya sussed out that he had written this article. But she also said, Stalin's ordering all of this. She didn't have any documentation. Nobody had any documentation of this until the USSR collapses and archives that were not public became public as a result of that. So the, the article says, we've had all this confusion and differences of opinion in the USSR, and now we're at a point where we can resume teaching political economy. So obviously, the line had been settled. Some controversies had been overcome that enabled them to write this article, but they didn't say how the confusion had been overcome, how the differences had been overcome. Dunyevskaya surmised that it came down from the top, but the archives show that that's exactly the case. Orders from Uncle Joe. The background to the story is that the Communist Party Central Committee in 1937 said, okay, what we need is a new political economy textbook. And from the start, Stalin was directly involved in this textbook project. He was commenting on and editing the drafts that he saw and rejecting what he didn't like. And by the end of 1940, this textbook had already gone into three drafts. Stalin had seen three drafts. He still wasn't satisfied. So there was this meeting in his office in the Kremlin in January 1941, and Leontief the head of the textbook project, the guy who was the main author of the article. He was in the meeting. Top officials were in the meeting. Other economists involved in the textbook project, they're in the meeting. 
And so Stalin is commenting on this end of 1940 draft. He's making his criticisms. He's putting forward his solutions. And if you compare the contents of the 43 article to what Stalin was saying in the meeting, the contents match pretty well, very closely. Key takeaway, I think, is that already by 1942 or 43, Stalin had consolidated so much power, near total power even ideologically, so he was able to stipulate the ideological line and to make economists adhere to it and colleges and universities and so forth adhere to it. Let me give you a flavor of what went down in the meeting, even more importantly, of Stalin's attitudes, his hostility to Marxian theory and his hostility to theory, generally speaking. This is from the minutes of the January 1941 meeting. Somebody makes the comment, the term surplus product in socialist society is embarrassing. Stalin says, on the contrary, we need to teach the workers that surplus product is necessary for us and their responsibility will increase. Just what you and I are talking about. Workers need to understand that they do not only produce for themselves and their families, but also in order to create reserves for the country to strengthen defense, etc. And then there's a comment. Marx did not write about surplus product in the critique of the Gotha program, you know, when he's talking about socialist society, communist society. Stalin has an answer to that. Stalin says, if you search for the answer to everything in Marx, you'll get off track. In the USSR, you have a laboratory that has existed for more than 20 years, and you think that Marx should know more than you do about socialism? You see, Marx didn't predict this or that in the critique of the Gotha program. You need to work with your own heads, not string together quotations. There are new facts and a new combination of forces. Be so kind as to work with your heads. End quote from Stalin. So he basically sounds like Kellyanne Conway with, we got alternative facts here, <laughs> or uh, Trump taking his Sharpie and redrawing the map. That's what Uncle Joe was basically doing, taking a Sharpie to Marxian theory and, and redoing it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the line in Stalin's answer, if you search for the answer to everything in Marx, you'll get off track. This is what Stalin's doing. But this is still what people are doing, I think, in the Marxist left as well. And okay, sure, maybe if we search for the answer to everything in Marx, we'll get off track. Maybe the answer to questions of quantum physics or how to have a healthy relationship with your dog or whatever are not in Marx. But surely expositions of Marxist theory, the answers can be found in Marx. This idea that we don't need to consult Marx to talk about matters of Marxian economics or Marxist theory. I think this idea still has purchase in the left. This has to do with our um, controversy around the historical materialism and Brill that you've published some articles in With Sober Senses about. There's just interpretations. All interpretations, for some reason, are correct because they're interpretations. There's no such thing as an incorrect interpretation. I just feel like that's a modern expression of this. You'll get off track if you go to Marx. Because if the answers to questions of Marxist theory 
don't need any consultation with the foundational texts of Marxist theory, then it's just whatever the so-called hires of Marxism have to say. There's no objective reference. So I know Stalin was saying this. He was saying this because he wanted the workers to work just as hard as they would under a capitalist regime. Even harder because the workers in capitalism got to produce surplus value, but what you care about is providing for yourself and your family. But you need to be patriotic. You need to be concerned about the country. We need reserves. So you're not only working for yourself, you're working for the country. Yeah, exactly. So it's this idea that you have you're working hard because you're working hard in the name of socialism. So you're a good socialist worker, good for you. These the blood and sweat and tears are the foundations of the new society or whatever. Yeah, you got to work harder. But this idea we don't have to consult Marx for questions of Marxist theory, I think think still exists. It still operates in the left and it's a way for people to just come up with theoretical gloss for their gut feelings or what benefits their private interests, et cetera. One thing where I don't fully agree with you is that mm-hmm. all of the answers are necessarily in Marx. They may be, they may not be. Marx made an error. The other point that you make is that this remains, however, a foundation, a text or set of texts that you consult and you test This, as a body of thought that hangs together, you don't cherry pick and you don't take a sharpie to it and redo it. I think that's extremely important. I mean, let me give you an example. A number of years ago, I wrote an article about how not to assess the relevance of Marx's capital. And one of the things I talked about was a well-known feminist theorist, Sylvia Federici. And she said, one thing we got to give up is this idea that production of value and production of commodities always go along together. Marx was unable to see that you could produce value without producing commodities. And that's what we got to give up because the domestic labor of women in the household produces things of value, but not commodities for the market. That was her argument. It's been her argument for decades. Thing is, what Federici is doing, and I think she knows full well what she's doing, is She's not taking one particular where Marx just didn't see women's unpaid domestic labor. It's not just one little bit that you can say, ah, the facts don't match it and we need to fix that. The fact is that commodity production and value production in Marx are one and the same thing. Only commodities have value. Products that do not have value, they're just use values, they're not commodities. And this definition really is not just that of Marx, it's basis of the political economy that he was criticizing, that of Ricardo, that of Smith, and so forth. So there's a whole conceptual structure. You make this little change that Federici is talking about, you're throwing out the concept of commodity. You're throwing out the concept of value. Theory is not just a bunch of pieces that you can juggle this way and that way. And it all sounds very good, paying attention to empirical realities. Let's look at the realities on the ground. Let's have the theory fit the facts. That's what Stalin is saying. Use your own heads. Look around you. This is the way things operate. The problem with this phony empiricism is underlying it is a dogma that what exists in Russia is socialism. 
that's an assumption that's begging the question. It needs to be proven on the basis of a conception. But they just give up Marx's conceptions. They say, this is socialism, and therefore, whatever we have, that's yeah. socialism. So it looks like it's empirical, but it's actually dogmatism. To respond to one thing you said about that, maybe I wasn't super clear. I wasn't trying to make the point that Marx absolutely is correct about everything. I was trying to make the point that engagement with him on questions of Marxist theory is crucial. So this engagement with him and good faith, honest engagement when there's no, like you said, background assumption that colors what you're going into. So the background assumption with the Soviet economists is that this USSR is a socialist society. So they engage with Marx in their article. They engage with the critique of the gotcha program and they engage with capital volume three. But they do so in a way that's colored by their assumption that they have by any means prove that the law of value operates in a socialist society. And then so they cherry pick these quotes and they twist them and turn them and distort them. They torture the quotations to confess their own points of view. The point I'm trying to make is not go to Marx and recite everything he said because it must be absolutely true. But when we're trying to resolve controversies about interpretations of Marx's concepts, we have to refer to Marx at least as source material, as a foundational text. So we can't just have these free-floating interpretations that are based on perhaps dogmatic assumptions a lot of the time. The political line of the moment, what you happen to feel like, what's good for your career, what's good for your publishing house. Yeah, I think I knew what you meant, but this is podcast and our enemies could use and will use anything against us. So we have to make clear that we're not dogmatists who are saying it's in Marx and therefore it's correct because people come up with that garbage all the time. So I just wanted to make that absolutely clear. I really didn't think that that's what you meant. Thanks for the clarification. On the topic of Marx's own concepts and theories. This has been episode 109 of Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast from deep within capitalist society. Thanks for listening. Uh, please visit MHI's website, MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes, learn more about the issues we discuss, post comments, and donate to this podcast series. For Gabriel Donnelly and myself, goodbye.